0: If you're new and and you have um, children, you can send them to the back if you'd like. If you don't feel comfortable with that, that's totally fine with us. You can keep them with you as well. Um, Before we go on too much farther, a couple things I want to do. Let's just take a second. If you guys can just lift your hand for me. We're going to pray for Jared and Hannah. And uh, they're over there somewhere. That way. So you don't have to extend your hand that way. But if you feel like you need to... um, We want to pray um, to release life over them right now. So, Father, we just ask that the creation work of God would begin to move through them right now. Holy Spirit, I ask that you invade that house. And God, I pray that the giver of all life would show himself with such victorious veracity that testimony would be yours and that glory would be had and that, Father, that the enemy and its attacks would begin to cease. We release life and peace and faithfulness of heaven over them right now. Be healed, be restored, and we, Father, we thank you for joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for praying for me with that. Um, welcome back, Tyler and Lindsay. It's been like three years. <laughs> Pretty sure it's been three years since y'all been here last, especially Lindsay, maybe four for Lindsay. If you guys forgot who they were, reintroduce yourself. <laughs> They've been super sick and uh, not feeling well for like, what, a month? Um, and a lot of people are sick and out. How I many of you guys have had this thing going around, and it's like, yay, thank you, Jesus, rejoice in all things, and it's hard to do that in the moment, but um, Thanksgiving transcends our situation, right? Uh, tonight, we have our worship night, so guys, I, I would really appreciate if you could make it tonight, help us pray and worship for the city. Uh, Dad, Nana, is that you guys back there? Wow, it's been like five years since I've seen you guys. Wow, wow, I'm glad to see you guys. Awesome, um, but yeah, come tonight if you can. Uh, it's going to be a couple blocks here up north here at the Duran Center uh, at six p.m. And um, we really bring some friends. We want to pray for our, if you if you care about where God has placed you geographically, then I'm I'm going to ask you to come be a part of what we're doing because. Um, Nothing happens without prayer. Nothing happens without worship, and um, that's what we're trying to do: is bring unity to the city of, of Harrison, to bring a blessing to our community, to pray for our businesses, our cities, our 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 city members, our council members, our mayors. Whether we agree with them or not is irrelevant. That's not even a point. I want to. I want It's not. It's not a criteria for prayer. Um, you know, Jesus is the great intercessor, and He's praying for you, and He doesn't agree with you all the time either. Um, so I know he doesn't agree with me. That's a fact, 100%. If you're a betting person, you can put your money on that every time and win. But he still prays for me. Um, so let's, if you can come um, tonight, that would be amazing. And then next week, we start our apologetics classes back up. Um, how many of you guys have been enjoying those? Anybody feel like you've learned anything so far? Yeah, okay. So if you have hard biblical questions or have you ever wondered about how to present the gospel to somebody, who may be an antagonist to the, to the gospel, you can come on those nights. We are recording those, but we're not going to give them out to anybody who's not in the class. So we have those links ready. We'll give them out next week. Uh, if you start attending, we'll give you access to those. Um, but you're welcome. Amen? Okay. Um, Jesus is king. Amen. Amen. We can go home. Yep. Things are more settled than you actually believe. And I'm waiting for all of our faith to get to that point. If anything moves you other than him, something in you needs to die. That's a good point. <laughs> what if you love the place inside you that needs to die? Well, then you're in trouble. Because now that's called as being at war with God. And you will lose or you'll die. Either way, he wins. Amen? All right, we're going through um, a, a, just a small journey. I'm not sure how far I'll go with it in uh, um, encounters with the king. These are, we're, we're going through the Bible where people meet Jesus and we're showing prophetic principles of what God not only intends but commands in every encounter that people have with him. And at, at, at some point, some people are going to begin to realize that they have not even had an encounter like this. And some people are going to realize they have and they never surrendered to it, which is even a greater tragedy. And we talked about, we spent, what, two to three weeks on John the Baptist. We did Mary of Bethany. Now we're going to look at Jacob. And how many of you guys know that Jesus was alive and well in the Old Testament? And uh, his life didn't begin in the womb of Mary. That he's eternal, he always has been, he always will be. And even in his Old Testament non-human form, he was still in desperate um, interactions pursuing mankind. It's a comforting fact that even in the Old Testament, I I find Jesus pursuing people. Because it's the nature of who he is. God's nature is to be attracted to you. Our nature is to be opposed to him. This is why we need an exchange of nature. Salvation is not just a simple decision, though it comes down to that. It's a decision that has great consequences to the Adamic nature inside of us. Because that nature is opposed to God. Anybody know anything about that? A couple of you do. What I want to I make very clear to all of us and that we need to understand that encounters with Jesus are never to leave us the same. I have people tell me all the time, well, I was saved 50 years ago, and it's like, I don't want to be like you. And if that's what you've accomplished in 50 years, I want to find... The real God. <laughs> you know, Gen X. It's my generation. That's one of the things we we broke a lot of things. We changed a lot of things in church. If you guys realize that, and there's still a lot of people that don't like what we've changed. And I'm not saying it was always good, but one of the things that caused God, that God put in my generation is the desire to get away from this stagnant, disgusting safety in theological boxes of confines of religion. We wanted a God that was real. Because I grew up in all that stuff. And I remember as a young boy seeking God and seeing what was going on in church and throwing my Bible across the room saying, If there's not more to you than this, then I don't want you. <gasps> you can't say that. You know, I think the God I serve is more attracted to honesty than he is the mask you and I make. We're afraid of being honest with God when he already knows what's inside of you anyway. I mean, come on, what are you hiding? You're hiding nothing. <laughs> you think God's impressed with your theology? The, the theology means the study of God. Tell me how you're gonna. the software is gonna understand the designer. I don't care what your theological position is. You're wrong, I'm wrong, and we're not gonna figure out how wrong we really are until we get there. The only thing we know is Jesus is king. His blood is real. His life is eternal, and he's the only thing that matters. Our opinions of it, I think God's going to judge many of us for our opinions because our opinions have died, have divided the body He died to save. I hear people all the time like getting involved in these stupid arguments of like infant baptism and water baptism and this. I don't care. Splash coffee in your face and move on with Jesus. I don't care how you get wet. I don't care if he can turn water into wine and he can turn coffee into water and make it work. I think it's the faith of the heart. And the Bible makes it very clear that we're saved by through faith. Jesus said all things are possible to them that believe. Oh, it's got to be this way. Well, Then then go do it your way, but get out of my way. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, people, so I meet some people and they think I'm young and I'm like I'm not young guys I'm old I'm old I'm 46 I've been preaching for 20 something years 26 years 27 years I, I've seen enough and nothing has impressed me yet except Jesus and I realized this morning during worship I was like God every encounter I've had with you I've never recovered from in fact, it's made me useless in this world. Every encounter I've ever had with you has left me being the tail in the, in, in the American society and not the head. I've not survived any encounter I've had with you. And I've had four or five major ones with God. And I look at people who are my age, younger, older than me, and I think, what is wrong with you? You've been a Christian for 50 years and you've had all these experiences with God, but you've fully recovered. I don't understand that. I'm ruined for anything other than Jesus. Not your opinion of him, because your opinion of him has never ruined me. It's those moments where he meets me by myself and he wrecks my heart. He rebukes the snot out of me. He corrects me. He chastens me. He disciplines me. But he loves me. And he shows me that the little I have of him is not enough. And there is no study that will reveal a part of him that my heart can understand. I want a generation of young people that inspires the world. I want a generation of middle-aged people that inspires the world. I want to look at an older generation and go, that's what it's supposed to be like to be old and in love with Jesus. But frankly, none of us have seen it yet. I'm still looking. A lot of old people who want to tell me what they believe in Jesus and what they believe about Jesus and the way they do it and the way they handle it makes me not want to be like them. And I'm like, you know, you've already lost me. Jesus was attractive. There's something about him that just... He didn't have to say a word and people came. They just found their way to him. Demon-possessed people running and falling at his feet. He never even opened his mouth. He just entered their life, and they bowed. That's amazing. Only one man has that kind of power, oh, and it ain't you and it ain't me. So I want to see what Jesus, what his intention is by the little that he showed us in his encounters with people and how there's supposed to be prophetic insights in how we meet him and what the requirements are. First of all, i got to set some backdrop, and I'm already 15 minutes into my sermon. How did I do that? That's impossible. You, I'm, y'all are probably expecting me to finish up here in the next 15 minutes. So I want to, I want to give you some back, back story. Jacob, the word Jacob means cheater or supplanter. You guys know that? Most of y'all know that? If you studied your Bible. You understand that the name that, got, that Jacob was born with is not the same name that God gave him. In fact, when you read the interpretation of the the Bible in the Old Testament, many times when God says in the future pretences of Jacob's life, when he talks to people and says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the word there isn't Jacob, it's Israel. The translators just kept using the name Jacob to differentiate the man who became a nation. And so God doesn't see Jacob as Jacob. He sees Jacob as Israel. And when God changes you and meets you, he doesn't see you as you were, he sees you as he intends you to be. The problem with the modern believer is that they don't accept the new definition of what, the terms that God places over their life, and so in unbelief they identify with the thing that God removed. Thus the conundrum. And then frankly, this is how religion makes its money. Religion makes its money by getting you into a place where you're constantly fighting the definition that God placed over your life. You can write books on it, and people will buy them. But the moment somebody is fully secure in the identity that God made them, they don't need any other book than the Bible. I mean, I'm not not against them. I've I've written some, but they don't help. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) They don't, they don't have the word of life. There's only one word of life. So I want to read. Um, well, let me, let me just, let me pass this up to speed some time. So Jesus appears in the Old Testament many times. And um, this is one of them. There's actually several here we're going to look at. But even in our old man, In our old condition, before we even knew who God was, Jesus appears to us in certain ways in certain times. It may be just a spark of hope or a desire to change. For that person who isn't saved and doesn't believe in God, they have no idea that the fact that they have hope for tomorrow comes from God, because in hell there is no hope. Every human being who has ever lived or who's ever alive, while they're alive, they do not know hopelessness. It is impossible for a human being that is alive to know hopelessness. It's impossible. They might know a lack of hope, but they don't know hopelessness. They always think tomorrow it might be better. That thought alone is from the Holy Spirit getting you to not quit on a life he wants to change. Because in hell, there is no hope for tomorrow. It's eternal, it's never ending, it, it never changes. There is, there's, there's this understanding in the brain that is unlocked, that makes sense that I am never getting out of this place. And true hopelessness sets in. We always have this as believers, I hope one day I'll be better, my marriage will be better, my relationship with God will be better. At one, at one point in your life though, that will stop and you will be what you are forever I think we live in hope more than we live in faith and hope that doesn't lead to faith is futile it's powerless it's necessary but faith, hope and love are the trifecta and hope is supposed to lead us to faith which makes us fall in love Love is the end result, but you cannot get there without a hope and a faith. Are you with me? All right, so Jesus encounters us where we are, and this is what we see in Jacob, so that we can end where he wants us to be. And some, sometimes our current position is in opposition to what he's intended us for it to be. Our current position is in opposition to where he wants us to be. That's why he encounters us. God encounters us because we're already in opposition to where he wants us to be. He brings us into an encounter with him to take us out of where we are into where we should be. That's why I teach this all the time. If the spirit of the Lord ever comes upon you, it's not so that he can show you where you think you're right. It's not a condoning issue. When the spirit of God comes, it's a convicting issue. God doesn't let his spirit touch you to keep you where you are. He lets his spirit fall on you to pull you out of where you're at. A lot of people are like, oh, we have the presence of God in our church. That means God's not okay with where you're currently at. He wants you farther on in where he is. Amen. Let's look at it in the life of Jesus. When Jesus had the Spirit of God fall upon him in the baptismal waters, was that to condone the place where Jesus was supposed to build his kingdom right there at that moment? Or was it to move him forward into some place that God wanted him to be? Jesus is the standard of the interpretation of the Word of God. Not your or my opinion. Jesus is the standard. Every time in the Bible where the Spirit of God comes on somebody and lands on somebody, it's to pull them out of where they are to get them into where God wants them to be. Why is that different for you and me? Why do we take it as a condoning issue instead of a convicting issue? We should be convicted when the Spirit of God lands upon us. There's something he's saying. I don't want you where you're at. I want you where I want you to be. And the spirit being upon us in that in that moment is to pull us out of that. It's the invitation. It's the door opening, either for ourselves or someone else. When the spirit comes, he wants to change things. So when you pray, Lord, let your spirit fall. You know what you're praying for? The utter demise of everything you thought you wanted. You're praying for the complete overthrow of any other kingdom than his. And then we pray these things, and then God starts wrecking our kingdoms and our opinions and maybe puts people like me in your life, and you're like, I don't like any of this. Don't ever pray to be like Jesus if you don't want things to get difficult. Because Jesus' entire life was difficult. And then Paul echoes that in Acts. He says, through much tribulation, we enter the kingdom amen so the king encounters Jacob not for Jacob's sake and the king encounters you not for your sake but for the sake of the kingdom concerning him Jacob was the final piece in the patriarchy of God's intention for mankind have you ever done a study on Abraham, Isaac and Jacob you should it's a prophetic allegory of the father the son and us It's an Old Testament allegory of how God works. It's a perfect story, perfect image. One thing we see in the prophetic reality of Jacob is that his life is not complete without what he births. There's a progression of natural order. Abraham has how many sons? Nope. I know in human form we says he has two. But how come in human form, whenever God says to, to Abraham, take your son, your only son, and take him to the mountain and go worship? See, God doesn't honor what you birth. He doesn't acknowledge what you build. There's only one sonship God honors. And it's not the Adamic nature. When he says in John 1.12 that he gave us power to become the sons of God, it's not because we did it in our own strength. There's only one son the father accepts, and that's Isaac, which is a representation of Jesus. If God would have honored Ishmael, if he would have honored Ishmael, then that means there would have been another way for man to produce the purposes of the kingdom of God, and there is no other way. Can Ishmael be redeemed? Yes. Absolutely. In fact, we are all in some form if you're not a Jew in Ishmael. <laughs> Praise God. My point is, is that there's a natural progression. Abraham had one true son. Isaac had two, but only one true son. I, <laughs> right? Jacob I've loved, Esau I hated why because he's all is the first he represents the flesh that which comes first i mean the bible says the flesh has to come first and then the spirit that's the way it works it's the order that's why jesus in the flesh came first and then the holy spirit that's why in your life that's exactly the way your new beginning works your flesh came first what and then the spirit have you seen these things in your bible before We need to understand the intention of God else how are we going to live out the intention he places us in? It's good to get into the micro essence issues of what we think the gospel is but if we study one puzzle piece for too long without stepping back and looking at the picture we miss the point. Does this make sense? Are you with me so far? All right. So What Jacob births is the intention of God. Jacob had how many sons? Twelve. (laughs) It's a big difference between one and two. See, what God reserved for us was the multiplication of his intention. In the beginning, it's the same way. Be fruitful and what? Jesus says, go out to all the world, making disciples of all nations, teaching them. We are the multiplication factor of what God's intention is. And Jacob is a perfect example of who he chooses to make that occur. Now, if you look at Jacob in the flesh, he's not, he's not a role model. Praise God, because neither are you. That means we have what? Hope. But if our hope doesn't get transferred to faith, it'll never lead us to love. This is what we see with Jacob, happens with Jacob. <laughs> So, am I are, am I making this clear enough yet? Are you following me? Okay. So, what we birth is often more powerful than what we can accomplish. This is why you know in the Hebrew mind, posterity was more important than the American mind. I remember seeing a bumper sticker that said, "I'm outspending my child inher- child's inheritance," and I, and I and I and I it was funny. I was like, "Ha ha ha!" But I was like, "You're you're an idiot. I'm not gonna work my whole life, so my kid. Why not?" Because if you do that, what you learn, what you live, dies with you. That's why you think your kids are so important, because there's an innate thing that God pressed in a button inside of you that says, i got to leave something behind that's bigger than me. It can carry what I believe and move it forward. It's not enough just to birth a child. It's to raise one up to believe as you believe, to live as you live. What you birth will always outlive what you can do. This is why if you don't birth things and your life becomes about you, your gospel becomes about you, your faith becomes about you, your Christianity becomes about you, it dies with you. Why did you think Jesus taught us to go make disciples? Because it's not about, it's about, it's not about Jacob, it's about his sons. Because his sons would birth the nation, and the nation would ultimately bring forth the king. Do you understand that when God encountered Jacob, he was actually securing his own entrance into our reality through the encounter he gave with Jacob? In other words, Jacob, if you if I don't meet you here and now, I can't come through you there and then. Isn't that how it works with us? You're going to find a lot of similarities with Jacob as it is with you. I mean, you can say that Jacob from his mother's womb was a selfish little brat. Mama's boy. <laughs> hey, if you don't believe it, go read the story. He's not a man's man. See, Esau was a man's man. We would praise Esau today. We would despise Jacob. In the American culture, Esau would be praised. He's a man's man. He's a hunter. He's a daddy's boy. He's a, he knows how to provide. He can go out. He's, he's a man's man. You know, Jacob. He sits at home with mommy all day and snivels and complains and gets his way and undermines and cheats his brother while he's out in the field. Certainly not a guy you pick to build a nation, or do you? It's not the guy you and I would pick. And if you think you would, you're already deceived. I'm telling you, you're deceived. You would not pick him. You would have not picked Judas either. but we don't understand the purposes of God. We want a world without Judas, but Judas is required to bring forth the sacrifice of a king. Why just let God have all these bad things happen? Because without the bad things, there's no redemption. If all the bad things didn't happen, you wouldn't need God anyway. You wouldn't even believe he exists. Why do we need a God? Everything's great. My bank account's full. We're all there's no world hunger. There's no rape. There's no murder. There's no crime. There's no poverty. It's not God that did that. It's the good of humanity. It is the evil in the world that convinces people the need of God. Not that he started it all, he allowed it, because if he didn't, there wouldn't be no free will. You don't want free will, then go get your little brain chip and get turn into a robot. You can have it. Jacob's promise, I'm speaking prophetically now. You understand what I'm saying? Not, not, I'm not prophesying, but I'm teaching prophetically in the principles of God, how he's how moving. So when I, when, I, when I talk about Jacob, take it to you. Jacob's promise came before his fight. And many times that's exactly the same way it happens to us. How many of you guys got, turn, got turned it over to God at some point in your life and he gave you a promise and then things got, they, they went to hell? Why does God promise something and then it gets really hard? Because it's it's the promise that makes the fight endurable. It gives context to the war. The promise holds us in the battle because of the faithfulness of the one who promised. So in Jacob, we find a spiritual symbolism of us, right? He was born a faithful pedigree of Abraham and Isaac. Even in our unsaved form, we're made in what? whose image? We're not children of God, but we're made in his image. People say, oh, we're all God's children. That's not, that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. If that was true, the Jesus who defines the Bible would have never said to those Pharisees, you are children of the devil. Your father is the devil. That's not true. These, 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 these dumb, ignorant statements that Christians use in the world are absolutely not true. There's only two fathers. It's God and the devil. The Adamic nature owns the nature of Adam. The the devil owns the nature of Adam. God owns the nature of Jesus. But even in our unsaved state, we were made in his image. Now, it's safe to say that we're all made in his image. We're not all children of God. Originally, we were, and then we screwed it up. So he was born a faithful pedigree. Abraham's the type of a father, Isaac's the type of a son. You'd understand that when Abraham took Isaac to the sacrifice, you can't get into that right now. It's a different message, different, different lesson, different service. He willingly lays himself down. I've preached on it before. Everybody thinks Isaac was this eight year old boy. No, he was probably in his twenties. And Abraham was old. And anybody who thinks that Isaac couldn't have taken Abraham in that moment physically is again ignorant. Abraham didn't overpower his son and make him as impossible. You know, a 20 year old is not going to fight, you know, a 100-year-old man and lose. Isaac willingly laid himself on that altar, just like Jesus willingly laid himself on that cross, and out of Isaac came a nation, and out of Jesus came a nation. True or not? All right, I hope... Maybe I just helped you get some inspiration to study your Bible. Hopefully you understand the story. Anybody ever see that stuff before? Okay, good. So Jacob's you, it's me. He's a representation of what God chose to extend his divine pedigree into the earth. Abraham may be the father of faith, but the nation bears the name Jacob. Isn't that interesting? But the nation bears the name of the most unqualified, least considered person. <laughs> that guy you probably wouldn't even want to be friends with. Guy, he's going to cheat me too. You know that. Can I borrow your lawnmower? Heck no, Jacob. <laughs> Go get your own. I'll never see it again. He's that guy. God chooses what is even despised by its own self in order to build what's an aspiration to others. So Jacob's our beginning, Israel's our end. You need to keep that in mind. Jacob's your beginning, but Israel is your end. You're grafted in, the Bible says. That true? Yeah. So we lie, we cheat, we manipulate, we live in fear for the betterment of ourselves. If we're not Jacob, then Who is? See, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Oh, that's so amazing until you look at Jacob. If I explained all these types of things to you, you would not, Who anybody wants to have the Jacob anointing, come on up here, we'll pray for you. Problem is, you already have it. You have the Jacob anointing. I have it. We have it. We have to put it to death. Amen? All right, so... God births sons in the midst of iniquity, not in spite of it. So here's what happens. God encountered Abraham, right? You remember? He promised him a son. You remember what chapter that was in? Right after he promises Abraham a son, he starts talking about the iniquity of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because in the presence of evil, God births his greatest glories. Right before he's about to destroy something, he creates something. There's always hope that God gives, even when destruction's coming. If judgment's coming, don't look for the judgment. Look at what he's birthing to be able to survive it. Let it be birthed in you. How many of you believe judgment's probably coming to this country? Then why don't we focus on what he's going to birth in us in the midst of it? Instead of worrying about the judgment, we worry about what he's going to promise, the promise that he's going to give to birth inside of a nation. God's not going to let everything die. He's the God of life. He will win. I don't care how bad it gets. There's going to be a moment where he splits the sky open and all bets are off. Everybody will quake and shake in fear in that moment. And those who have not existed in the idea that there is a God will immediately repent, but it's too late. See? Somebody's saying amen. I would thank myself, but I'm going to thank whoever has that on their phone. Don't worry, I've done that before. Don't feel bad. There's grace here. So the context of God's intention is that he comes to a point where he births something, he promises something in the midst of, of, of difficulty with Abraham, and that's Isaac, right? When God encounter, encounters Isaac, the promise was the multiplication of seed. See, Jesus appeared to Isaac as well. He said, I'm going to multiply your seed as if it were to be the sands of the seashore. Did Isaac see that happen? No. (laughs) The promise comes before the battle. When God promises you something, the devil steals it from you by getting you to believe it's not valid just simply because your eyes don't behold it. But what Jesus wants you to understand is he's given you a different set of eyes. You're just not familiar with using them. Isaac had a promise he never saw. (laughs) Who brought forth the promise that God gave to Isaac? It was Jacob. See, sometimes what you're moving in and believing for and working with might actually come through the person you raise up. The American sense says, I don't want that because I want to be attached to it. The kingdom says, we already know you're attached to it and the reward is the same. Because we don't have a posterity mindset, we have an individualistic mindset. It doesn't matter how great your theological abilities are, if you don't pass them off to somebody, they're pointless. This is why I, 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 I wonder sometimes if people get so hell-bent on trying to prove their theological points, but even the directions in in which they're trying to prove them causes everybody not to want them. It's like, man, you're just... You're drilling yourself into a circular grave. You're burying yourself. Like, I don't care how convinced you are if you don't have the ability to convince other people. It's pointless. It dies with you. The greatest, the only thing you get, the only thing you get is just the satisfaction of thinking you're right. And even then, only you're the one that can enjoy it. <laughs> you're the only one. It's, we have to make our gospel valuable to somebody else. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is a desire, not an instruction. See, these people who wanted rabbis in their life, they desired them, they sought them, they pursued them. Jesus was the only rabbi that actually pursued the disciples because in their culture, that didn't happen. The people was a lot like a republic in that sense, kind of voted for their rabbi. I want to go sit with this rabbi for a month, and then he goes, sit with this rabbi for a month, and then sit with this rabbi for a month. And then after they got through all the rabbis, they decided, this is the one I wanted to be like. It wasn't the teaching. It was, who do I want to be like? Which rabbi fits me? Sadly, that's how Americans pick churches. That's funny. I have people leave all the time over micro issues. They finally find out what I believe on a micro issue because I don't talk about it a lot. But if they stay long enough, which they do like six months, a year, two years, and they'll finally ask me what I believe on a micro issue and then they're gone. It's like, wow. You know what I figured out? The only pastor they're ever gonna be okay with is themselves. And the deception is that they think they can pastor themselves. The Bible says if you judge yourself by yourself, you're already unwise. If you compare yourself with yourself, you're already unwise. You, you're, you are your own ceiling. Nobody gets ever. You have to have people in your life. And we want to find a pastor where we agree with every little thing. It's never going to happen. Never going to happen unless you are your own pastor. And that's why so many churches are started. And then those people start churches, and then someone leaves them because they disagree with something small. Congratulations, you're reaping what you're sowing. And then they get mad at the person, but feel justified where they left. It's human nature. It's crazy. We need to make our gospel valuable to people, not demand that our gospel is valuable. When you start loving people where they're at, your gospel becomes valuable. So God's intention for, was for us for, to birth a nation, nation through, <coughs> through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Seeking God is so that we can find his intention. We need to know what our father's up to. Jesus said, I only do the things I fa- see my father do. We need to know what our father's doing. Whether your ministry is prayer or evangelism or prophecy or whatever, you need to know what your father's doing. You need to know why he's called you into it. It's bigger than you. It goes beyond you. You have to be on, on alert for the person he's putting into your life because it may not be the one you think. The one who can carry your gospel forward, your ideas forward. Are you pouring into somebody who's hungry and have you found somebody like that? Or are you just arguing with somebody trying to get them to choose your side? See, encounters with Jesus create desire. Encounters with theology create arguments. So I've always made it a, a standard in my life that I don't argue with people within the faith. You you believe in this about water baptism or this about that? Hey, I'm good, man. I, I, praise Jesus. You, you might be right. But I would rather spend my time trying to find the, the hungry than arguing with the fool. You, you're you saved. You love Jesus. You agree with certain things. Like certain theological points, are, I agree, they're, they're un. Movable and unchanged, but those aren't, they're not that many of them. (laughs) Jesus is Lord. God raised him from the dead. He's the king of all glory on earth. His blood forgives sins. We're saved by grace through faith. He's the only way to heaven. You agree with that type of stuff? You and I can get along. We may disagree on a thousand other issues, but here's the point. If disagreement causes you to not love a brother, then I question whether you love God. Because God loves you and He disagrees with you all the time. People say, oh, how can you walk together if you be be agreed? First of all, it's an Old Testament scripture. Second of all, I always ask them, that's a good question, ask Jesus. Because he walks with you and he disagrees with you. And they instantly shut up because they realize it's a reality. We need to look at people as the posterity. And this is what Jacob had. He had, a, he had an inheritance that he had to pass on, something that he got from his fathers to move forward in life. And, and I want to show you there's hope and no matter how much we've messed everything up. When Jacob, God encountered Jacob, there was something different. There was three encounters that Jacob had with God, which is distinct because there's three parts of us and each one of them needed an encounter. <laughs> Some, many of us have had a spiritual encounter in our heart, but our brains needed an encounter. You know what healing is? That's, in, that's our bodies encountering God. There's so many Christians who have not had a soul encounter with God. Their mind, their will, and emotions are still theirs. When the Bible's very clear that you need to renew your mind. We need to renew our thoughts. The first encounter, I, I don't have time to read them, but the first, you can write them down if you want. If you, if you don't, then you, that's up to you. Just don't call me a liar later. Genesis 28, 10 through 15. That's... Um, that's where Jacob encountered uh, the Jesus and there was a ladder and the angels were going up and down. Remember? Um, this is where he promises them the, you know, an inheritance as well. So that's the promise. That's the first encounter, right? The promise comes uh, and then the second encounter is the wrestling with God in Genesis 32, 24 through 31. <clears throat> and then the third encounter is the surrender to the promise, which is Genesis 46, one through four. Surrendering to the promise looked opposite to what the promise was. And I'll just briefly state this, because that's not gonna be where I'm gonna finish. But in Genesis 46, one through four, the third part of the encounter where Jacob encountered Jesus, he says, I want you to go to Egypt. (laughs) That doesn't look like what we thought, does it? No, 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 we're supposed to have land, in a nation, we were promised this. But if you understand that God prophesied to Abraham that your children would go into slavery for 400 years, it doesn't look like part of the promise when God told Jacob, he says, I want you to go to Egypt. I want you to take your family, and I want you to go to Egypt. I want you to go to the place that looks opposite to where I'm, I'm actually going to end up pushing, placing you. It's like Jesus being going to the wilderness. Wait a minute, we got to go Where? We got to where before we, we were victorious? We got to go where? And there's times where if you follow God enough and you're broken enough and you surrender enough, He's going to take you to a place where you don't want to go. Ask Peter. Remember that thing that Jesus, him, and had that little discussion toward the end? He's like, if somebody else is going to take you where you want to go, you don't want to go. They're going to dress you. you. You're going to be led by some. You're going to end up following me to places you don't even want to be. Because, see, it's not about who. We forget that, don't we? Most of our prayers are about God, beautify my life, simplify my life, fix my life, fix my family, fix my kids, fix my job, fix my finances, fix my career, fix my this, fix my that. When in reality, you're the one that did all that. You know what that looks like? Oh God, that you would bless Ishmael indeed. Abraham prayed that prayer. Are you praying? Oh, Pastor, I'm praying. what are you praying? See, it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not that you, because I talk to people who don't even believe in God. They're like, oh, I pray to God all the time. It's like, you're a liar, first of all. But it doesn't matter whether you're praying or not. It matters who you're praying to and why you're praying because the why behind the prayer determines whether you're real and you're praying. Jesus didn't pray for himself. And the only time he did, he didn't get an answer. Maybe that's the key to unanswered prayers. But every prayer you ever prayed for somebody else within the Father's will, 100%. Maybe it's something you need to jot down and we need to look at, right? So when we encounter the King, we receive a promise and then we realize we don't have the ability to bring it to pass. That's what happened with his first encounter. So then what? We wrestle with God on that promise and then we have been reduced to nothing but weakness and then we finally... You know, have to surrender to his entire process. You may have been through that. If you haven't, it's coming for you. I'll be a prophet and say it's coming because it's a standard principle of every way that God works with every person who pursues him. At some point, you don't even have to be a prophet to be able to tell people what's coming next because you figured out the blueprint that God has. You're like, ooh, you're at that stage of life. Father, give them grace. It's coming. And you can't tell them because they won't believe you. They won't. The only thing they have is their current zeal that they have that's riding on the last encounter, and they think that everything's going to be peachy now. No, when God encounters you in a great way, there's a great testing that's coming. It has certainly been true in my life. But see, within most people get a promise, so they're very familiar with Jacob's first encounter, which I wish I had more time to go through this, you know? But everybody's very familiar with that promise. That It's what we usually call salvation. You know, I was, I was talking to somebody not too long ago, and they were going through a really rough, rough time, and, and they said, I finally just got to the place where I was just done, and I, and I just said, look, God, I just want you. I just want you. And I said, you know what I call that? Salvation. See, that's the moment of Salvation. This presence-filled idea of salvation is not always working out to be salvation because people who get touched like that ends up going out and being twice the child of hell before they came in. No, salvation is completely broken surrender to Jesus where we only want him and nothing else. That's when you get saved. I think there's a lot of people in the church who think they're saved, but they've just been touched. That's just my opinion. I think I can prove it in some of the teachings of Jesus, but I don't have time to do that. You can talk to me later. So they're wrestling, so most people get stuck in the second part, the wrestling part, where you're fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting, and you can't win. Because you want God to bless your nature. And he won't do it. So let's look at it, right? Can we look at it? Genesis 32, 24, Jacob was left alone. Anybody ever been there? Even married, you can be there. (laughs) I thought I'd get more amens from the women, but that's okay, we will move on. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the break of day. This is Jesus. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob... He touched the hip of his socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint, and he wrestled with him. i always been confused by that. It's like, man, this is Jesus. Like, how in the world can he not prevail? And I realized he's not fighting with the physical force, he's fighting with the will. And God made it so that his strength stops where your will begins, if you so choose, or it begins there, if you so choose. The will is the dividing line where God decides where he can go forward or not based upon you. So he did not prevail against Jacob, so he touched the hip of his socket. This is why I say if you have a true encounter with God, you'll never survive. Something, you will walk out different. You'll be changed. And he wrestled with it. next verse he says, let me go for the day breaks. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Because in the beginning part of our walk with God, that's all we really care about. Being blessed. The blessing. Bless me. Bless me. My family, my home, my kids, my job. Bless me. And he's like, and guess what? God's, God doesn't answer that prayer, does he? Praying that did not stop Jesus in that moment to go, You're blessed. Now let me go. did it didn't happen. Bless me. And he said to Jacob, What is your name? Man God knows how to get down to who we really are, doesn't he? Admit it. You're a cheater. You're a liar. You're a surplanter. You only care about you. See, when you meet God, he'll show you who you really are. Because who you really are has to be exposed before you can be blessed. Because if he blesses who you really are before he changes you, who you really are, he makes a mistake, and God will never make a mistake. So he gets Jacob to, to, to deal with his own reality. You know, some of you guys in here are wrestling with God right now in your life. You're wrestling with God, and you want him to bless you, and he won't until you admit who you are. See, women want to make, make it like it's their husband who's so bad. And men want to make it like it's their wife that's so bad. Now, but until you admit that you're Jacob, you'll never be blessed. I what do to happen? What's your name? He says, I can, I can see it. Like, this is my interpretation. Probably, you may disagree with me. This is the way I read it. He's fighting, fighting, and all of a sudden, and Jesus asked, what's your name? And I, I think Jacob just stopped for a minute, and he's just like... Jacob. Because, see, they didn't call people by names. They called them by identities back then. Your name was your identity. So to say, I'm Jacob, you, you, can you imagine having that? Like, if your mother named you Cheater, that's the modern equivalent as an American name. Your mother named you Cheater every time. Hi, I'm Cheater. Ooh, whoa. <laughs> Have a nice one. Good to meet you. That's, that's what we would do. Have you ever met somebody named Jezebel. There's a reason why Americans don't name their daughter that. You want your boy to marry a girl named Jezebel? Or are you going to be like, son, I think she might not be the one. Because <laughs> we understand identity, don't we? I'm Jacob. I'm a cheater. And look, look here's what God does. He bypasses Jacob's immediate need and goes to what actually needs to be done before he even answers the prayer that Jacob desires. Because God knows how to do what he intends, whereas we do not. We just have the desire for it. We don't know the trajectory on how to get there. And he says, your name shall be no longer Jacob. He says, I'm going to fix the whole root of your problem, but the way I fix you is going to cause you to be broken every other place you ever attend. He says, your name is going to be no longer Jacob, but Israel. Can you imagine that moment? He says, because you've you've wrestled, you've prevailed with God. See, at some point during the wrestling process, it wasn't God holding Jacob. It was Jacob holding God. And that's how you know you're really in love. and You want something to change in your life. Because no matter how hard it gets, you cannot let go. You cannot let go because there is nowhere else to go. And he changes who you are. He changes your name and your identity. You're a prince with God. Can you imagine him get like what? Like he knows he's wrestling with God, and, he's, and God says, "You're my prince now." It's like what? What? And everything changes for him. Look at the story. He says, you've striven with God and men, and you've prevailed. And then guess what? Jacob's no longer, this is so amazing to me. Jacob's no longer asking for a blessing. See, when God encounters you, your prayer changes. First part of the story, what's he asking for? Second part of the story, after his his identity's changed, what's he asking now? Who are you? I want to know you. What's your name? Can I know you? He's not saying bless me anymore. He's just saying, God, I want to know you. I don't care if I'm blessed. I don't care if I'm poor. I don't care if I'm rich. I don't care if I'm, I just want to know you. Because when your identity is changed and you have purpose in your life, you want to know who gave you that purpose. But if your identity's not changed, you're still wandering around, wondering why you're even here. Because you understand deep in your soul the futility of life, and know that no matter how much money you make it, somebody else will spend it. No matter how nice of a house you build, somebody else will inhabit it. No matter how awesome of a car you buy, it will always end up in the mechanic shop. It's futile. Who are you? He said, please tell me your name. And then God investigates his motives. Mo- he says, why, why, his motives, why do you want to know my name? You know what the, the, the deciding factor of all life is? is not whether you know God in the end. It's whether he knows you. Read Matthew chapter 7. Lots of people meet him thinking they know who he is. The criteria wasn't, I know God. The criteria is, does God know you? So God asks him, why do you want to know my name? It's enough that I know who you are. <laughs> If he knows who I am, that's all I need. But that's a powerful thing because if God knows who you really are, he knows you were Jacob. And he wasn't ashamed to still fight for you. Why should we pursue God? Why should we seek him? So that he can know us. Oh, you already, no. He knows you in theory, but does he know you in experience? Practically, he put you together. He knows every fiber of your being, but have you allowed him to know in relationship what he has created? So many of you guys are stuck in that wrestling point. Verse 30 so Jacob called the place Peniel for saying, I have seen God face to face and my life has been spared. Well, not the first, but one of the earliest men in the Bible to look at the, upon the face of Jesus and find mercy. <laughs> And what happened? He rose limping because of where God touched him. God touched my life, be careful what you pray for. Because if you don't understand what you're praying for, you're gonna have to have a pastor counsel you through things that are happening in your life because of your prayers. Jesus says, take account, know whether it's possible when you're going to go to war with 10,000 men against 20,000. Before you build a house, make sure you've got enough to finish. In other words, what he's saying is, before you decide to follow me, you're going to be underfunded and outnumbered. decide if I'm enough because there's going to be times where he's going to take you back to Egypt there's going to be times where he's going to allow you to go here and go there there's going to be times where if he's not enough he'll expose it I've had God ask me that so many times. I've been praying and complaining and whatever in ministry and people treating me this way. I've given my life to these people and then they backstab me and this and blah, 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 blah. And then I hear this. I mean, he lets me just go off on this rant. (laughs) uh, Later on, I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, God, I'm I'm terrible. I'm, I'm Jacob right now. And he says, I thought you were doing it for me. Just within that question alone, I realize the utter selfishness of even considering of how it affects me, and I realize the utter brokenness that he understands now that I wasn't doing it for him, so I have to change that. I don't minister to people now for people. I minister to people for him. I don't have time to go into the third encounter. God's not going to give you your blessing until your identity's changed. Because the identity he gives you will be able to handle the blessing you desire. I'm not talking about your realization of the identity. I'm talking about having an encounter with him that so moves and changes you that you're useless for anything else. It wasn't until God did this for Jacob, and I'll close with this, that he saw his brother properly. See, at this second encounter, Jacob was about to go meet Esau, and he was scared to death that he was going to be killed because his past finally caught up to him. But when he got up that morning, he walked across that river and met his brother, and they fell into each other's arms and wept because it was Jacob who finally saw his brother correctly after he saw himself correctly why is identity so important? Because you're never going to be able to look at disciples correctly if you yourself are broken. You're never going to be able to raise your kids properly if you don't get healed. You fight God in your personal life and you have children, you are in danger zone. Because they're his kids, not yours. And you're wrestling with God and fighting him is only gonna cause those children to suffer under your decisions and anguish. And broken people can only create broken people. It's not until we have this encounter and our perspective shift, and we understand that we're not seeking blessing anymore, but we're seeking his identity, that we can see each other clearly. And then the bickering and the murdering and the division and the gossip and the backbiting and the slander within the church stops. Do you know how I know the church is broken today and she's not whole in her identity as a whole? Because all she can do is attack each other. That's all she can do no, we're the better church because we have this and they have that and they're wrong and I disagree. You know, Do you realize that even in this city, the United Worship that we're trying to put together, there are actual pastors who will not come because of just the songs we sing? No joke. I'll never tell you who they are. I would not do that to them. I'm just telling you we have a problem. It's so funny to me that people have that position because most of the hymns that you grew up singing... We're set to bar tune music back in Charles Wesley day. You think those are holy? No. They got birthed out of drunk people singing songs. Somebody just changed the words and used the same tunes. And you think so and so worship is evil because they're not perfect? Name one band that is. Worship is in spirit and in truth, not the author of the music. One person can sing Amazing Grace, and it be from hell. And the next can sing it with a pure heart, and it be a a pleasant odor to God. We need to be healed in our identity. We need to stop wrestling with God. So we stop chewing each other to pieces. Paul says, be very careful when you go against each other, biting and devouring. He said, you may consume one another. You don't think spiritual cannibalism isn't real. Go read your Bible. People who cannibalize one another and people who cannibalize themselves are still in the wrestling phase with God. I don't care if they've been a pastor for 50 years. Titles don't give you character. So let's just stand, if you will. I pray you understand the principles of God's encounter with Jacob and how it fits in our life, because each encounter that the king has with us, is, is a, there's a requirement, there's a, there's, a, there's a progression, an intention. If we can carve these things out, we can see what God wants in our life. And then prayerfully we can give it to him. How many of you want to do that? You want to give God what's ultimately his, which is you. If you don't, I pray you do. I pray you get that desire. Father, we are not sufficient in ourselves. And no matter where each person is here in this progression of Jacob, we need you. I thank you, Father, that your word says there's forgiveness with you that you might be feared. That forgiveness... Would flow through this place in every area of our mind and our heart where we're unsettled or fighting you, we would understand that you're trying to give us a new name. And when we're praying for blessing, you're praying for identity. Not theological terms, but an encounter that we don't survive. I pray for those here who aren't desiring of such things, Lord, that one day in their future they would collide with such a place of wrestling. That even if they don't even remember this day, that the prayer would be there in that day, in that moment, living alive and powerful, ready, ready to drop upon them in a moment. That you might have what you died to give. We thank you, Lord, that you are patient with us. <laughs> Such patience we don't deserve. But let's place our lives upon your altar and make it about not only your glory, but the posterity of those who you desire to encounter through us. May your people be forgiven as they confess, made whole as they believe, and encouraged as they walk with you. Let healing come to their body, their mind, their soul, their spirit. Whatever need is present in this body right now, Lord, touch it, and touch it deeply. May we honor you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.